you to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 1. I also want to point out to you when you have time, sometime this week, uh, when you have uh, time to be able to read something short without being interrupted on uh, page 15 in the bulletin, uh, there's a, a short article dealing with um, what we would call penal substitutionary atonement. Basically, um, you know, there are on many different fronts, there are attempts uh, within Christianity to undermine various elements of the gospel, uh, to water down our theology for various reasons. And what we strongly believe in, which is that Christ was our substitute, that God laid on him our sin, and then that God punished him as if he had committed the sins that we were going to commit. Um, that's, the, that's what penal substitutionary atonement's all about. And there are those who, for quite a while, uh, and it continues to gain ground. And again, when I say within the church, that doesn't mean that everybody who's doing this is a believer, because many of them are non-believers. But it's done again within the church, within Christian schools, uh, and within seminaries. And then it comes out in Christian books and various kinds of publications. There's, a, there's an attack on that. And so there are articles about that and about some objections that people raise uh, to undermine it. So it just would be good to read that uh, so you can become familiar with it. Um, because any uh, strong attempt that is made to undermine the fundamentals of the faith, uh, we need to be aware of it, have our, have our faith strengthened, be encouraged, uh, so that we don't fall prey uh, to these kinds of attacks. And then perhaps if there's opportunities for you to speak with others who might be involved in a church or maybe here uh, and begin to question themselves, you can kind of help lead them in the right direction uh, when it comes to that. So... Anyway, I would, I would encourage you to, to read that. Again, when it comes to theology, when it comes to the Bible, details are very important. Um, and we want to make sure that we don't just kind of gloss over uh, those things. Because if we do, uh, it changes what Christianity is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you this evening, as always, Father, we are so grateful to you. Father, we know we can never thank you enough for all the good that you do. We know, Lord, that the word says that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from you. We know, Father, that every good thing that happens to us is a blessing from you, that you have your hand in every good thing that happens. Of course, Father, we, we always remember, and it begins with the fact that we have been saved from our sin, that we've been saved from being condemned to hell, that there is a place that is reserved for us in heaven, that we've been adopted as your children, that we belong to you, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. Uh, and, and, Father, we can, just, we, we can never thank you enough just for those things, much less all the rest that you do for us and give us. So, Father, we want you to know that we love you. And, again, we want to say thank you for the good that you do for us. And we know, Lord, it's because you are good. And we ask now, Lord, as we continue to worship you, as we once again focus our thoughts and our attentions upon your word. And in particular, Father, as we now work our way through the book of Matthew, and look at the details concerning the life of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would again enable us to understand uh, what has been written. Helping us, Father, to understand why these things have been written the way they were written. That, Father, we may have a good grasp of the truth of the gospel of Christ, of the life of Christ. 
And that, Father, it would strengthen us, Lord, as we seek to grow and become more like Christ in every way. So we thank you, Lord, again for your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of Matthew, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it reads this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded, to put, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus." So as we, as we made our first pass through this passage last week, let me just remind you that, that again, as we talked about the importance of the details, we, we uh, saw that um, within the Catholic Church and really within many aspects of Christianity, uh, many people still refer to Mary as the Virgin Mary. And we shouldn't always do that. Again, remember that if we're speaking of Mary and the birth of Jesus, then, it's, then that would be correct to refer to her as the Virgin Mary. But any time we're making reference to her in general or reference after the birth of Jesus, we should not call her the Virgin Mary because she wasn't the Virgin. Um, Again, we saw that uh, verse 25 makes it clear as the emphasis has been in this passage to make sure that we understand the uh, Virgin conception and birth of Jesus. But again, it tells us here in verse 25 that Joseph did not know her till or until she had brought forth her firstborn, which means that after the birth of Jesus, they then had a what we would call a normal marriage, and they had a normal physical relationship like any other married couple would have. And so she she is not perpetually a virgin. Uh, And a lot of that is um, not only ingrained in people because of the teaching of the Catholic Church, uh, that also kind of... Uh, lend support to a couple of different movements within the uh, Catholic Church where this has been going on now for quite a while. Uh, there's, been a, a, there's been a growing group, but it probably started 40 years ago. I can't give an exact date, uh, but there's been a push to uh, emphasize that Mary suffered like Jesus did. And then the next stage is that Mary suffered as much as Jesus did. And then that Mary suffered in much the same way that Jesus did. And then the last stage is to uh, get the church to officially name uh, Mary as co-redeemer. And the idea then is that we are then saved by the sufferings of Jesus and Mary, which again would be heresy, but that's, you know, that, that's a movement uh, that many are carrying on now really in the name of uh, and, and Mother Teresa, because Mother Teresa was big into that idea and believed that very strongly. And so we need to be very careful. Again, it's not that we're looking to cause trouble uh, in the lives of people, but again, it's important uh, that we take these opportunities and point out to people that 
A, they are believing something wrongly and that our belief is correct because it's based on what the scripture is teaching, not because it's based on tradition. It's not because I've said this or someone else has said this. It's what the scripture declares. And we always go back to what this says. And so, again, as we mentioned before, the details are important. Speaking of that, uh, this passage tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Most of us understand that means that she was engaged uh, to Joseph. What, we, what some people don't understand, many, if you, if you listen to Christian radio, especially around the time uh, of December, you know, you'll hear just a large number of messages on uh, everything having to do with the birth of Jesus. And so many have heard something about this. But again, back in those days, uh, to be betrothed to an individual uh, in the Jewish community, it carried with it a, a, um, some specific uh, legal things. There was a legal status to being betrothed. It wasn't just like being engaged today in our culture and you get a ring uh, because a person can break that off. And even though there might be pain, tear, sorrow, and embarrassment, this is not that big of a deal in a sense. Uh, it's a big deal to those involved, but there's nothing legal about all of that. But in the Jewish society, it's a big deal. Uh, the only way that a betrothal could be um, broken was there for there to be a divorce. There had to be a filing of divorce. It had to go to court uh, for this thing to be done. So the Jewish marriage then involves a, uh, a couple of stages. The first one is it involved a formal witnessed agreement to marry and the giving of a bridal price. So the idea there is that there was uh, when, when this arrangement is made, again, what we're used to in our society is, is the man normally will ask the woman, will you marry me? There may be witnesses, there may not be. I guess it depends on how much social media you want it to be on. Uh, a lot of times, if people tend to be a little more conventional, uh, there may be the asking of the bride's father, which a lot of Christians do that, but non-believers at times don't do that. Um, and um, it's, just, you know, that's kind of, it's just kind of then declared that, that this is now taking place. For them, there had to be witnesses. It was a formal event. There were witnesses. Uh, there were a lot of people around. And then there was the giving of, of money uh, from, the, from the groom to the bride's family kind of to, to seal the deal. Um, I don't know how the whole bride price worked. I don't know who sets that. I don't know if the guy should add a tip or not. You know, I don't know how the whole thing goes. Um, you know, there's an old Hawaiian uh, uh, story about a, uh, a, a young Hawaiian girl who her family treated her poorly and she believed that she was very, very ugly. And along came some young Hawaiian man that fell in love with her and the bride price for her was, uh, at one time it had been two cows, uh, but the father made it clear that he'd be willing to take one cow because he was afraid nobody would want her. Uh, and and uh, so you know, everyone's feeling bad for the girl in the story. And so the young Hawaiian man, when he wants to marry her, he brings seven cows uh, and gives it to her dad for her. And of course, this transforms her life. Uh, because she believes that she's valued and loved, and then everybody saw that she was this incredibly beautiful woman, and thus they lived happily ever after. So we're not the only ones who have happily ever after, but uh, that's what it is. But so here, when it comes to this, there's the giving of the bridal price, uh, which kind of sealed the deal, so to speak. So that legally then, the woman now belonged to her husband-to-be, and she would even be called his wife. So even though they were engaged, it would be proper uh, to call this young woman the wife of this man. The second uh, part of this then is the ceremony normally took place about a year later. 
maybe a little more, but about a year later, uh, when the groom then would basically come and pick her up and take her to his home. That was what would happen. He'd go to his house, uh, and there would be a big party there. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, every year there's this list that comes out of all the, I guess, of the, what they call the best party schools in all the colleges, uh, but they know nothing about how to throw a party uh, because for the Jews, when you had this kind of party, it was seven days. That's just, that's incredible, uh, a seven-day party. I don't know how you would do that. Uh, I'm not really big in the parties. That sounds unbelievably boring to me, but nonetheless, that was uh, what they would do. There's a book about, well, there are several books about the virgin birth, but one, of the, one, uh, one that was, that's very good is one written by Raymond Brown, and this is what he says about the betrothal. He says, the consent or betrothal, you, betrothal usually entered into when the girl was between 12 and 13 years old, and it would constitute a legally ratified marriage as it gave the young man rights over the girl. So that was the norm. 12 or 13, this would take place. About a year later, they would get married. Now, we know that the scripture does not tell us how old Mary was, but I don't think she was in her 20s. I think she was young. Um, so we have to be careful that we don't want to be dogmatic because so, we want to shock people. Uh, but if somebody says, you know, so she was only 15, maybe. Again, that was normal. We have to be careful that we don't, you know, because in our culture we go, oh, I can't believe they were 15. Oh, no, that was just very common uh, back then. That was just normal uh, for, uh, for that culture. And so that would not be viewed as being strange in any way. So when this betrothal again took place, this is what he continues to write. She was henceforth his wife, and any infringement on his marital rights could be punished as adultery. Yet the wife continued to live at her home, usually about a year. Then the taking of the bride to the husband's family home took place, where he assumed the responsibility of supporting her. Um, So uh, another reason why uh, the marriage ceremony usually took place about a year later was that was a way to publicly show that she was a virgin. No shotgun weddings. Because if she was pregnant, it was, she would show for sure before they ever got married. And so this was a way to demonstrate uh, that, she was, that she was a virgin. So there was a reason behind this long waiting period that, uh, that was involved. So again, during that year, once again, the only way that this engagement could be broken was by uh, one of the two parties died or, again, there would be a divorce, and the divorce then would sever the contract. So when you look at verse 19, it says this, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, or to put her away privately. So it seems that Joseph, when he finds out that she's pregnant, assumes the obvious. Mary's been unfaithful. Uh, He's a just man, or a righteous man, and so he could not marry a woman he assumed was immoral. So that's the, that's the point of saying that he was a just man. A, 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 a man of character would not marry an immoral woman. He would be degrading himself if he did that. And so that's, that's why he's doing this. Because some people think that, well, he was a just man, and because he was just or righteous, he did not want to make her a public example. Now, that does reveal something about his character, but it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he's a just man. The idea of the just man is, is he's not going to marry someone who is immoral. So again, he did choose, as it says here, to keep it private. He did not want to publicly shame her, uh, which I believe shows that he was a man of very high character. Um, 
but when you read a lot of different commentaries, no one's really sure how he was going to do that because it's going to become pretty obvious eventually that she's pregnant and everyone's going to assume the worst uh, when, when she begins to show. So we don't know how he was going to keep it a secret um, because the only way, again, he could divorce her it was going to be through a public trial. In other words, when they did the divorce, it's not like the no-fault divorce we have here in our country, um, where in some cases you don't really have to even, you know, there's no trial. Um, you can just kind of go before a judge and get some paper signed. Here there had to be an actual trial uh, for the divorce to take place. Uh, in other words, the way that it would work is he would, Joseph would have handed her a bill of divorce. Uh, the way he would do that, he would have to go to the authorities, draw up the paperwork so they would know. Then he would take the paperwork and then go and deliver it to her family and to her. And so all of them would know. And then the word would spread very rapidly about what was going on. So we do have to ask the question, then, what does, he, what does it mean? What's it trying to get at or communicate to us when it says that he wants to do this privately or he wants to do this secretly? So once again, in his book, Raymond Brown says this. I believe that all that Matthew means is that the divorce, Joseph was, that in the divorce, Joseph was not going to accuse Mary publicly of adultery and not subject her to a trial. To avoid the charge of adultery, Joseph could have offered less serious grounds, so the divorce quietly uh, or to divorce her privately may mean really that he was seeking to divorce her in a lenient way. So again, we can't be dogmatic, but that seems to be more along the lines of what he was going to or what he was trying to accomplish. Is he was because he could divorce her for a lot of reasons. Uh, in fact, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, uh, if you read through the Mishnah, if you ever, if you ever want to get a copy of the traditions uh, of the Jews, the, the Mishnah is what it's called. Uh, the Mishnah was not completed when Jesus was on earth, but the Mishnah was basically the oral traditions. And so whenever, you know, when you come across the teaching of Jesus and he says, you've heard it said, um, well, that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the traditions. And again, remember, um, I've mentioned before that the traditions is basically what another term for that are called fence laws. And that's where you take the law of Moses, 613 commands. And then around that, you build a fence of other laws. And the initial goal was to prevent a Jewish believer from breaking the law of Moses. You have a fence of laws. If you break those laws, that's a bad thing, but that serves as a warning that you're headed or that you're going in the direction to break the law of Moses, and that then stops you. So the fence law has been successful. However, by the time that Jesus is on the scene, the fence laws were being viewed by many individuals as being equal to the Mosaic law. And when I say many individuals, a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees were viewing the fence laws as being equal with Scripture. And so now we've got a problem. Uh, just like, again, with the Catholic Church, and sometimes uh, other denominations in doing the same thing. Certain traditions uh, sometimes are viewed as being on par with the commands that God has given us. And so we always have to be very careful about that uh, to make sure that we are not dogmatic about things that the Bible is not dogmatic about and make commands to be somehow the commands of God if God has not given those commands. And so that's what was going on there. So again, what, what basically it means here is we see that Joseph is really a, a, a very, uh, 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 religiously speaking and morally speaking, I believe he's a righteous, just man. And so he can't bring himself to marry a woman who's been immoral. He can't do that. At the same time, he doesn't want to make a public spectacle of this. 
we can go into all kinds of reasons why. Maybe he was just hurt very deeply. He really loved her very much. That may have been true. We don't know. But we do know that he intended to, at least as Raymond Brown says, divorce her in a very lenient way so as not to bring public shame her way, at least there in the beginning. Um, so Joseph's a good guy. And uh, I think Joseph wants to do what's right. So in verse 20, it says, but while he thought about these things, so he's thinking about this and how he's going to accomplish this. So while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So several things that are in the message here that are important. Number one, Joseph then is told by God that he is to fulfill the marriage vow. He's, so this is, he's, divorce is not the way to go. This is not what God wants. Number two, as far as her pregnancy, the child was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So it was not through an immoral relationship. And then thirdly, everything that was happening was happening according to plan. And that pregnancy was the fulfillment of what we looked at last week, which is the passage in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And verse 22 then goes on and says this, So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, which is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So if you look at the title of your sermon, uh, in the Hebrew language, uh, if you read things by Arne Futenbaum or uh, Alfred Edersheim, um, David Barron is another name. Uh, there are several guys that are, that are similar like that. They'll tell you that in the Hebrew language, um, they like to play, they, they like wordplay. Now, they're not playing a game, but, but a wordplay uh, is a mechanism they would use that would really help people to remember things uh, and also to make a point in whatever that point may happen to be. So Jesus, his name, means Savior, uh, and he will save, means he will rescue from death uh, or rescue someone from impending peril. So then uh, if you were to kind of incorporate that wordplay, uh, then you would have, you shall call his name Yeshua, for it is he that shall Yoshia, his people from their sins. So basically you would call his name Savior, uh, for it is he that shall save. And so again, what's the emphasis? The emphasis is on salvation. The emphasis is on why he's coming. This is why he's coming, to save his people from their sins. Man's greatest need is going to be addressed. Man's greatest need has always been the fact that he is separated from God, and that is the source of all of his trouble. So what we need to, again, be reminded of as Christians is this, that when it comes to all of the trouble that non-believers have in the world. It is not anything having to do with the environment, whether it's the environment as far as weather or it's the environment as far as how they're raised at home. Those things aren't helpful, but that is not the source of their trouble. The source of their trouble is the fact that they're separated from God by their sin. And that's why there's a need of Christ. That's why it is important that we emphasize this, that when it comes to the ways that people deal with life, and there's a lot of very unhealthy ways that people deal with life. Uh, again, we're all very familiar with the, with the various forms of substance abuse. 
uh, the, you know, the chemicals people use, whether it's alcohol or drugs. Uh, we also know that there's a growing list of what we call addictions, um, whether it's being addicted to video games or being addicted to um, whatever it happens to be, that those are coping mechanisms that people are using. Now, the person may be in denial and say that's not why they do those things, but that is why they do those things. An individual who's addicted to, for example, video, video games, and they may play, let's say, video games for six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day, those individuals are coping with something in their life. It doesn't mean that their life is horrible. It may just mean their life is empty. It may be that their life has no direction. But, but there's something going on in their life. Their life is incomplete. There's a hole that is there in their life. And that is not going to be filled or addressed by video games. And I know that often when we think of video games, um, and I, that's only one of the many things we could pick on, but again, when it comes to video games, we usually think of, of you know, high school boys and them wasting all their time in front of the computer uh, playing these games. But the ones who spend the most time playing these games are the guys that are in their 20s. It's not kids in high school. They, they, they spend a lot of time doing it, but it's guys in their 20s. They're individuals who are, who, are, who are willing to give up sleep to keep playing many of these games and put their jobs and their health in jeopardy they continue to play these games. They now have, which I'm sure you're not surprised, that they now have these recovery places where you can go uh, or you can send your kid or send yourself to uh, basically be cured uh, and broken, go through withdrawal um, of, of playing these games and uh, you know, learn again to deal with life uh, in the proper way. But again, all these things that we're going through as a society... All these attempts that man is making to try to address these problems. Again, even if you're able to help an individual overcome, let's say, a video addiction, or even if you're able to help an individual overcome their alcoholism, even if we do that, what have we truly accomplished? Those are good things, but we've not solved the problem. We've not addressed the problem. The problem is spiritual. That's not a narrow-minded approach to the problem. It's a correct-minded view of the problem. It's, it's a correct understanding that man as a whole being, man is a spiritual being. We, we are a being. We are a spirit um, that has a body. And when that spirit's out of whack, everything's out of whack. Uh, you've heard me mention before, again, uh, the list of four things that happened at the fall, which, I, which you get from the, from the writings of Francis Schaeffer, uh, that man became alienated from God and from nature, and from other men, and became alienated from himself. All of those are the results of the fall, and that's why Jesus Christ is the answer. So that's why then when we get here, and it talks about Jesus being Savior, this is important. You will, you will find when, it, when it, we get to December, actually it's a little earlier now just because of people trying to push shopping on you, uh, but, but they will still at times, even though it's becoming less and less, will play uh, in certain public areas, certain kinds of songs. Uh, there'll be a lot of certain kinds of hymns that we played on you know, those Christmas movies, and, and they will not hesitate to have songs where people talk about the one being born who's the Savior. We need to, again, use that in our conversations with individuals and ask them, have they ever noticed the emphasis that when Jesus came, he came, to, to, he came as Savior? What do, they, what do they think that means? Who was he trying to save? Save them from what? And who needs a savior? What is all that about? And again, the idea is to try to you know, bring back to the forefront 
uh, the real reason why Jesus came, why he was sent by God. And that, again, is emphasized here. So we are being rescued from death. We are being rescued from impending peril. So after he says that, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2 of Matthew reads this way. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And uh, many of you know now, because we've only emphasized, well, I've emphasized this for 20 years, remember that the shepherds and the wise men never met. Okay, they just, they don't meet. And uh, so make sure you emphasize that to your children. And when you set up the nativity scenes, take the wise men and put them somewhere else in the house. Say they're still traveling. Uh, they'll remember that. They will remember. And I, I know that sound, I know that's kind of funny, but let me tell you what happened was well, I preached a message when I was the interim at Calvary, which is this way back in the 90s. It's hard to believe that the 90s was way back. But anyway, uh, so back in the 90s when I was the interim at Calvary, uh, at Christmas, I, I uh, went through a sermon and talked about the wise men and, and uh, you know, that they weren't there and that kind of thing. And I remember a, uh, an older couple, they were in their early 90s, and, they, and I knew them. Uh, we were on, you know, we'd, we'd come to know each other as I was preaching there, waiting for them to get a pastor. And uh, that, that it, was, it was at night. So that evening, he came up to me, and he was, he was angry. He was really mad. I had no idea what was coming. But I could tell when he was coming up there that, A, he was going to speak to me, and, B, he wasn't happy. Uh, and when he got up to me, he said, i got to ask you a question. I said, okay. <laughs> I got all kinds of questions now and accusations, so I don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. And he says, why is it that I've been coming to Baptist churches for 65 years, and I never knew that? And I said, never knew what? That the wise men and the shepherds never met? And, of course, I'm thinking, everybody knows that. But everybody doesn't know that. And he was livid. Because, and, and even though no one else was kind of knowing, he actually felt embarrassed. How can I, who I've been a Christian for 60-some years, not know that? And he was just beside himself. He wasn't mad at me, thank goodness. He was just upset. Um, so again, all, all these details are important, and we want to make sure that people are paying attention to the details uh, when it comes to this. So when it comes to the wise men or the magi, which is a correct uh, term to use for them, uh, uh, how many wise men came when, uh, that were traveling to Bethlehem? Again, the Bible never says. So I know we sing the song, We Three Kings of Oyanar. Um, it's just a very unfortunate uh, line in that song uh, because there weren't three. There were three gifts. But we don't know if there was three. We just know there was at least two because there was more than one. There were wise men, not a wise man. Uh, but there could have been 200. That would not have been an unusual thing. Arnold says maybe 2,000. I think that's a bit much, but he's using hyperbole on purpose. Uh, but the point is, is we don't know. But it causes a stir when they show up because Herod, you know, it's a big deal when they show up and they come basically... Uh, very nicely and respectfully demanding of Herod uh, to know where this king is going to be born. So the whole city was in an uproar because of the arrival of these men and because of who it is they're looking for. Also, when it comes to the Magi, they were not kings. So again, I know we sing the song, We Three Kings. Robert, you may have to rewrite that uh, and make sure it sounds good, though. 
Uh, but anyway, um, they were not kings. They were wise men, which is the correct term, magi. We could even use the word astrologer. Now, people really freak out when it comes to astrologer. Uh, we need to remember that often, not always, but often, back in the days when Jesus was born and then going all the way back to the time of Daniel, that astrologers were individuals who usually were both a combination of what we would call normal astrologers and also astronomy. They really were studying the heavens. Now, they weren't into the whole horoscope thing that people sometimes get into, which is just absolute foolishness. But the bottom line is they did believe that the stars did give signs and there, were, there was a way to read the sky um, and it was important. But they also did very detailed studies uh, of the heavens and how they moved and how the stars aligned and all those types of things. So, so, they, were wise, uh, so they were wise men in that sense. So uh, astrologers were basically individuals who were experts in the interpretation of dreams and other secret arts as well as, again, those who studied astronomy as well. So it would be a combination of both science and superstition, uh, which is what they were. They were from the east, meaning they were from the area of Mesopotamia, uh, exactly where they were from. Again, when you look at various commentaries, they say some will say they're from Persia, others from Arabia, some from Babylon. Many say that they're from Babylon. Uh, the reasons that are given is because uh, after the Babylonian exile, a large group of Jews remained there so that Babylonian astrologers could have learned something of, of uh, the Jewish messianic expectations uh, and might have associated a particular star with the king of the Jews. Uh, I do think that's it's probably along those lines, maybe going all the way back to Daniel and his influence in Babylon when he was there. Uh, but we just have to be careful. However, I do want to save you some money. Um, because uh, in a few moments we're going to talk about the star. I know there's a couple of videos out there that you can buy, or I guess we don't buy videos anymore. I guess they're DVDs or whatever it is uh, you can get. But there's these things that are made by individuals, and they talk about uh, what the star could be. And they go through a long 60 to 90-minute presentation of all the stars and heavens and which star it could be and what stars were shining at that time. It wasn't a star. But what we think of a star in heaven is... You're wasting your money, right? I can tell you for a fact it was not that. Um, but you can still go to many websites uh, that would talk about that. Uh, again, the star that's mentioned in Matthew is not necessarily what we normally think of as a star. And again, that's important. Uh, so we can explain that to our children and grandchildren that it wasn't a normal star. Uh, in other words, it was not necessarily an enormous mass of hydrogen and helium. Uh, that was a gas, a gas powered by nuclear fission, or fusion, I should say. Uh, the Greek word that's translated star is aster. Uh, that's where we get our word astronomy from. So the biblical conception uh, of the word, a star is any luminous point of light in our night sky. Not very helpful, but that is um, a definition that is used. So that would include what we consider to be stars. That would include planets, supernovas, comets, and anything else that resembles a point of light. And so there's been lots of speculation as to what this is going back hundreds of years. There are those who believe that there could have been a supernova, basically an exploding star, and that somehow fits the uh, conception of what, at least what we have on Christmas cards um, as to what the star would have been. That a star in our galaxy explodes. It was shining very brightly for several months. 
because this event is just magnificent and very rare, and because it outshined all the other stars in the galaxy, then it would only seem fitting that, this, that such a spectacular event would announce the birth of, of the King of Kings, uh, the God-man who would outshine all the others, so there's all these connections. However, a supernova does not fit the biblical description, so it wasn't a supernova. Um, the Christmas star, as we, as we call that, um, I don't think it could have been that obvious because it went unnoticed in Israel. They weren't aware of what was going on. Um, King Herod wasn't aware of it. He had to ask the Magi when the star had appeared. He's like, well, what are you talking about? And he wanted to know more detail about this star. So if it was a supernova, everybody would have seen it. So there was some misunderstanding, not misunderstanding, but they weren't aware of it. Um, some some uh, speculate that the Christmas star was a bright comet, uh, and, but again, everybody would have noticed if it was a comet. Uh, comets uh, back then, and even today in some places, but many people believe that a comet would be like an omen of change, especially in the ancient world. If you saw a comet that believed that some big change was coming, again, uh, Herod wouldn't have to ask when the Magi, uh, the Magi when the comet had appeared because he would have been aware of the appearance of a comet because his wise men would have told him about it that he should be aware that some significant change is coming, whatever it may be. Um, and, uh, but also what we do know from reading the passage is a comet or a supernova, they don't move in such a way as to stand over a specific location on the earth. And that's really one of the main things that this star does that separates it from being these things. Uh, I think it's Answers in Genesis. Uh, they have an article that goes through all these theories and one of the guys that, that wrote uh, one of the papers that I read believes, he's wrong, but he believes that uh, uh, this theory, that the Christmas star was a conjunction of planets. Uh, a conjunction of planets, he writes, is when a planet passes closely by a star or by another planet. He says an event like that would have been very meaningful to the Magi who were knowledgeable of ancient astronomy but would likely have gone unnoticed by others. But I uh, don't quite think that's right. There are seven things, uh, seven observations that we can make about this star. Uh, there are several lists that are out there where individuals have kind of sat down and, made, and just kind of said, okay, what is this? What does the text of Scripture say about this star? So, there's, so I've combined a couple of them, so, but tried to make sure there's no overlap. And there are seven things here that uh, we can say about this star. Number one, the star was seen and understood by the Magi, but no one else, or at least no one else is mentioned. Number two, the Magi saw the star on at least two occasions, before meeting with Herod and then again after. Uh, they apparently saw the star when it first rose, uh, and their meeting with Herod occurred less than two years later. Thirdly, the star moved, or at least it appeared to move, going ahead of the Magi, because they followed it. Number four, the star stood still. It remained stationary over the location of Christ. Apparently, it guided the Magi to the correct house. Uh, this means the object must have uh, revolved along with Earth's rotation so as to remain directly above Bethlehem. But again, I would emphasize that it not, it not only pointed to Bethlehem, it pointed to the house. Uh, there's no, nothing in the text that says they went knocking on different doors looking for a, a newborn toddler. You know, they weren't doing that. They knew exactly where to go. The fifth thing is, the Magi recognized the star as signifying the Messiah's birth. In fact, this is called his star in verse 2. And so that's significant. 
then these two things, which uh, I think the last two are really important because it helps us to understand that this is not a normal star, so it cannot be, again, what we think of as a star, and that is this. It moved east to west, and then it moved north to south. Stars don't do that. So again, it literally came down and hovered over one particular house in the town of Bethlehem. So given all this information, we ask the question, what celestial phenomenon can account for this remarkable event? And I believe that it's... uh, Simple, only because I've been given the answer uh, that I believe is correct. It's not because I figured it out. Um, I learned this um, when I was, uh, let's see, I remember when I first met Arnold Frutenbaum, uh, and I think I was in high school, um, and he was going through a series on the life of Christ, and all of this made sense. And so what he reminds us of is go to the Old Testament. Israel followed the pillar of cloud in the daytime, the pillar of fire at night. It's the Shekinah glory. Uh, the Shekinah glory shown around the angels that appeared to the shepherds. And so what was this star? Again, we use the word star, but this beam of light, it was the Shekinah glory. Uh, it appeared and disappeared. It moved, uh, guided them to the right place and to the exact house. And uh, that's what it is. So what we see here then with this star, what we see then with the dream that Joseph had that gives him very specific information and instruction that we can see not just the presence of God, but God superseding and everything that's taking place so that things go exactly the way that he has determined they would go. That Again, the hand of God is all over this. There is no way any of this could be just a coincidence. Uh, God was directing all of this, and it was taking place exactly when he wanted it to take place, in the way that he wanted it to take place. And again, it takes place really in a very humble way. There's, there's no band. There's no loud trumpets. Uh, Jesus wasn't born in a, in a wealthy uh, household or a palace or castle. You know, we know that he was, uh, when he was born, he was born uh, in a stable. And then he's just in a, just a regular house when the wise men appear. And uh, again, this is God's way. Uh, there's a lot of really good articles as individuals kind of speculate as to why God did it in the way that he has done it. But we've already been through some passages in the scripture that remind us uh, that God does the things that he does to confound the wise. Uh, yet what he does is not dumb. What he does is unbelievably creative, imaginative, uh, and logical in every way. And it's never the way that man would do it but who would follow what man would do anyway because he's directed by his sinful passions uh, and it's not going to go in the right way. And so once again, what we can see here is God orchestrating all of this so that when he sent his son, his son was going to accomplish exactly what he wanted it to accomplish. And what we can say confidently is that what God was doing here, he was doing for you and for me. He was doing for them For each one who has come to know Christ as the Savior, God was doing this for them so that this could take place at this particular time. Uh, We don't talk this way, but Francis Schaeffer uses this term. He talks about that God acted in real space uh, and time. And there was this emphasizing the reality, the fact that, that these are real people. This is a real event that's taking place. And when you look at the planet, this is a very... My, a very small speck on the globe, very unimportant, 
all kinds of things are taking place in the world when this event takes place. The, the, the one little event that was going to transform the world and one that has transformed the world and one that has transformed your life and my life. And so there's a great deal for us to be thankful for. And I trust that, that not only this year, but in every year, when you and I, when we sit down and we read through the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Luke, when we read this story and discuss this story, with, whether it's our family or with others, that these details will be details that we will remember and be able to talk about so we can once again emphasize the plan of God and what God was seeking to accomplish and that this is not just some cute story about some cute little baby that was born a long time ago that people really like because uh, that is not what took place. This was God in all of his greatness moving to save you and I because God is a God who is good and has placed value on us as individuals because he loves us, he cares for us, and he's created us in his image. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your goodness that you have displayed for us and for the incredible way that you brought these events about in the word. We thank you, Father, for what was accomplished here in the life of Mary and Joseph and with the birth of Jesus. Father, we ask that you would enable us to be able to remember the details, the important details of this story, and to recognize, Lord, that you have left no stone left unturned, that every single thing has been paid attention to, that everything has been taken care of, so that nothing um, can happen that has not been, play, that been, been planned, nothing can happen that has not been formed by you, uh, that nothing can go wrong on any way or in any way, shape, or form. That, Father, our salvation might be accomplished and the salvation of literally millions and millions of people. And, Father, for that, we thank you so much. And so, Lord, the birth of your son Christ is a precious story to us, one that we, we truly love. For many of us, we have read the story and heard the story explained 50, 60, 70, 100, 200 times in our lives. And yet, Lord, it, it truly doesn't ever grow old because of its significance and its importance. And so, Father, again, we humbly bow before you and say thank you for not leaving anything concerning our salvation up to chance. Father, we ask now that you will bless as we bring our time to a close. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.